0: Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin
1: with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies' splendor, for each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's, huzzah! A toast to breakfast.
2: Okay, I'm gonna name two of the most popular movies of our lifetime, and I want you to pause for a moment. And just remember the joy those movies brought to you. Okay, ready? You've Got Mail and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Come on, they're too good. And both of those screenplays were co written by my guest today. She has also written dozens of books, many of which are bestsellers. I'm talking today with Delia Efron. Now, her last name may sound familiar to you. She's the younger sister of Nora Ephron, queen of the romantic comedy, a voice for a generation of women. Get this. She wrote When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle. Nora passed away in 2012 after a private battle with cancer. I happened to pick up Delia's latest book, Left on 10th, A Second Chance at Life, And I'm wondering, man, why haven't we also been talking about Delia all these years? She's just like her sister. Her writing is incredible. It's so beautiful. I just didn't want to put the book down. Here's what you should know about Delia. And I recently learned a lot of this myself. She's one of four Efron sisters, defined by her family as the funny one. And that comes out in her amazing body of work essays or op-eds, screenplays and novels, but she doesn't just write to pay bills, she writes to heal. Delia has suffered a lot of loss in her lifetime. First, her sister Nora to cancer, and then just a few years later, her longtime husband Jerry to prostate cancer. That type of loss back-to-back would harden so many of us, but it did not harden Delia. There is no armor around her. In fact, she is a delight. She loves to laugh and continues to write, which is exactly how she recently got through her own battle with cancer. You'll hear her mention AML, it's a type of leukemia. And I should mention she didn't just get a second chance at life, she also got a second chance at love by way of, you guessed it, mail. She writes all about it in her latest book, Left on Temp. So as you can imagine, I can't wait for this conversation today. I'm Hoda Kotb. Welcome to my podcast, Making Space. Oh my God, I'm so excited to see you! You are brilliant. Come on. (laughs) There's not enough dog ears or highlighters for this book. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Wow. You're just what the doctor ordered for this time in life.
3: Oh, thank you very (laughs) much. (laughs) That's really good to hear. Wow.
2: First of all, what a delight it is to see you in person. I have to say, um, there are books that are packed with life lessons this one's overflowing. It's called Left on Tenth, A Second Chance at Life. And I want to talk about the second chance, but can I just talk about the first chance first? Can we go back to the (laughs) beginning? Do you mind? Okay. (laughs) I'm sure, Delia, a lot of people um, know you by, they know your last name very well, uh, Mm -hmm. Efron. A lot of people, of course, know Nora Efron. I mean, I know for a lot of your life, you grew up and you have siblings. You've got Nora as your older sister. You've got two younger siblings, Mm -hmm. How would you describe yourself in the group of four?
3: Oh, I was the funny one. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, we all get the little label in the family. And that was my label. I'm not sure what my other sisters were labeled, but that was definitely. And every time I said something funny at dinner, my father would shout, that's a great line, write it down. (laughs) So. I mean, we were all for, we're all for writers and my parents were writers and they were just raising writers. I mean, my mother was very proud that she had a career and she was a screenwriter and uh, she was, I mean, really fierce about it. And Mm -hmm. that's what her daughters, you will go to New York and you will have a career. That's all she said. She never said a thing about, about getting married, having children, nothing. In fact, she often said, elope. Oh, she did? How come? Oh, yes. I mean, a a mother of four daughters who was not the least interested in seeing her daughter's wedding. I mean, that was my mother. And she would say things to us like, um, when you have children, I'll just stay in a hotel. I won't (laughs) stay at your house. She would like assure us that she wouldn't be there. So, um, and she would often say, I'm too busy to go to open school night. And we thought, that that was marvelous because our mother had a career. She was a busy woman and she, w- yes, that was just fine with us. We really, she was on a pedestal. When you say that she was a writer,
2: she and your father were more than just writers. I mean, they were writers. Tell me some of the work they put out.
3: Well, first of all, you you made a lot more movies then. And they were, they were contract writers at 20th Century Fox and they wrote... Um, Daddy Long Legs with Fred Astaire. They wrote No Business Like Show Business with um, Marilyn Monroe. They wrote The Jackpot with Jimmy Stewart. But they wrote continually. They just mm-hmm. had a very nice run in the 50s. So with your mom uh, not stressing marriage
2: and stressing a career, yeah. did you think, um, were you interested in in marriage or was what she said the goal standards? Because sometimes we go against what our parents say. Our parents say, do this. You're like, okay, I'm doing the other thing.
3: Um, I I got her message very loud and clear but I also saw a movie when I was about 11 called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers which is the most oh it's just it's the romantic comedy of all time I mean it really is it's all about Jane Powell she 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 marries this in one afternoon she falls in love with a backwoodsman and moves to the backwoods to make flapjacks for his six brothers and all I wanted to do was get married and make flapjacks for someone. I saw that movie 16 times. I learned the power of a romantic comedy very young. Wow. Wow. I really did. So there was a little war going on. Partly, you know, I wanted to have a career. I wanted to be that child. And uh and the other part of me, I just wanted this other life.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's so interesting because um, when you say your parents were raising writers, um, again, it's the same thing about, well, I know what my parents want me to do, but here, here's what I want to do. If you were not writing, is there something else when you were a young kid that
3: you thought you wanted to do? No. Look, my sister Nora, was. she was like shot out of a cannon. And she was going to be a writer when she was two. And we all knew it. And Um, and so for me to be a writer, well, I had to not just take on my parents' career. I had to take on Nora's career. Mm -hmm. And then my younger sister, Hallie had to take on my career and Nora's career and my parents and my sister, Amy worse. Okay. (laughs) So each of us put it off a little longer, but I, I sort of look, you can blow your twenties and still have a life. And (laughs) I did blow my twenties. I just (laughs) married the first man who asked me and I moved to Providence, Rhode Island. And I, I got to be about 28 and I thought. What am I doing here? You know, I, 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 you have one life. You know, get this through your, your head. So I, um, at this point, I had a crochet business. All right, mm-hmm. I was crocheting, and I went to a party in, in New York, and there was an editor there from Simon and Schuster, and I said to him, um, I know you'd never be interested in this, but would you like a book about crocheting? And he said yes. He said, yes. I mean, first of all, presenting myself in such a pathetic way, I could not even believe, but I did. And the next thing I knew, I wrote a book about crocheting. And I didn't think I was writing. I was sneaking up on it. You know, I was just writing directions for things. So then uh, I started to think, you know, I think I want to be a writer. Hmm. And I said to my husband, my first husband, that's a very important part of the story. (laughs) I said to him, I think I want to be a writer. And you know how important it is to speak a dream out loud? Yes. And he said, uh, I don't want you to be a writer. (gasps) And I said, why? And he said, suppose you become famous. I don't want you to become famous. This is how pathetic I was. I said to him, I promise I won't be famous. I'm I'm actually worried I've been keeping that (laughs) promise. But anyway, I, I absolutely knew. I absolutely knew I had to leave him. I mean, if someone wants to crush your dreams with his big fat foot, you just better get out.
2: So you did. Was, it, was the breakup hard?
3: I, yeah. So then I, you know, I called my girlfriends in New York and I got on a train and I left Providence. And I thought, I have one year. I'm going to be a writer in one year. I'm going to have to do something else. Okay. And I figured out, I mean, I had messed up my 20s so badly that I, I made a plan. I, I really recommend making plans if you're going to make big changes. And okay. I said, in a year, I have to get published in the New York Times. That was your plan? Because that's the only thing that's going to launch me. Now, where, I hate to compare you
2: to your sister, but where was your sister's career at this point?
3: Oh, my sister was writing this amazing column in Esquire about mm-hmm. being a woman. And she was an editor at Esquire. And she gave me one of my first assignments, how to cut off your blue jeans. Okay, It was 50 words, 500 words. It was very short. It was very, very (laughs) short. Um, But she was totally always my, Mm -hmm. she was always a mentor. I mean, she just loved my work. And I was about nine months, no, almost a year, really. I was down to $500 Mm. and I was sitting at home eating chocolate pudding my way. The type you cook, you know, so it had skin on top. The film, yeah. And I was scooping the pudding out from underneath and saving the skin for last. And I thought, I'm eating like a child. This is how writers get ideas, by the way. This okay, is this, this ridiculous. Me. And I thought, I'm going to write a piece about how children eat food. And I wrote 500 words about, I, they were just directions. I knew how to do that because I'd written these crochet books. So I wrote How to Eat Like a Child and I sold it to the New York Times. Oh my gosh. And they ran, it was very funny. I ran it it ran on the last page of the Sunday magazine. And on Monday I was offered a book contract. You are kidding. No. And and that book was a bestseller, a huge bestseller. What was your, what was your first to, book? How to eat like a child and other lessons in not being a grown-up. Oh my God. Brilliant. Up next. People begin as they mean to continue. That is a rule I began to live by. More with Delia Efron. After this.
1: I turn on my computer. I go
0: online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've
2: got mail. So, for people who don't realize, "You've got mail" was not just written by Nora Ephron. It was written by Nora and Delia Ephron. Just in case, I'm just letting our listeners know they may they may or may not realize that. so, you know, your career, you write your book, your career is humming, but love is still something that you're you're looking for after you've right. written your first book. Um, how did you meet your second husband?
3: Um, he, he was going to see a movie in the neighborhood with a good friend of mine, and they got the time wrong. And I happened to live in this ridiculous place. I lived on Madison and 54th Street mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Nobody mm-hmm. lived there but me. I lived above a hamburger hamlet of some sort. You know, it was a hamburger... Hamburger heaven, I lived above. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she said, let's stop in and see Delia. And he Mm -hmm. walked up the stairs and was like that. That was
2: that. You knew. Yeah. Mm
3: -hmm. But I did get smarter about men. I mean, I did get, first of all, I made a a bad marriage. And then I got attracted to ridiculous people, you know, not nice guys. And I was saying to myself, you know, from the beginning, people begin as they mean to continue. Mm. That is a rule I began to live by. People begin as they mean to continue. Okay. So if someone shows up late on your first date, they are going to always be late for a date. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a very good rule when you take a job, when you meet a boss, you know, it's a rule for friendship. It's, and it turns out it's a great rule for men. Yeah. What'd you learn about Jerry. Well, Jerry's a writer, and I needed yeah. to be married to a writer. And he was just, the, he was just a wonderful man and very, mm-hmm. very supportive. He taught me so much about screenwriting, about drama. He was a dramatist, and it was just a great match. We were just mm-hmm. a great match. How many years were you guys married? We were married 32, and we were together 38.
2: Wow, wow. Yeah. I feel like in my life, everything good happened to me after 50, Everything. I adopted my kids. I got the job that I hadn't even been able to dream about having. Hosting the Today Show Mm -hmm. wasn't even on my wish list. It was like, that's not happening. Mm -hmm. So it seemed weird to me to think that sometimes it all lumps together. And also, conversely, sometimes the tough lessons all get jammed up at a certain time, too, I remember when your sister was sick. I didn't know Nora was sick. In fact, I think we had her on the show. And I remembered uh, not knowing about that because that was an illness that she
3: kept private, right? Yes, she did. You know, everybody makes their own choices when they get sick. But if you were really famous and you're public about something like that, I mean, there's just, you know, you leave the house and someone says on the street corner, you know, I'm so sorry, are you okay? You know, Mm -hmm. there's no privacy at all. And mm-hmm. uh, Nora was intensely private, and she wanted to run her it the way she she just did. I mean, I'm not someone that that can keep secrets. I'm not someone who's suited to it. Mm-hmm. But that that suited her more than that would suit me. I mean, it was interesting how differently. I mean, just to me yeah. that you know, because we were so alike in many
2: ways. You know, it's hard for a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to imagine. Many of us have siblings and sisters, and the idea that we're going to be holding our sister's hand.
3: How how did you navigate that that grief? Well, the, the really difficult thing was that, I mean, she died in 2012 and she was sick for the six years before. And at that time, they, they tested me to see if I was a match for her. She had a myelodysplastic syndrome and it leads almost inevitably to a fierce leukemia. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that can cure it is a bone marrow transplant, also known as a stem cell transplant. So they tested me, but they also discovered that my bone marrow was slightly wonky. Mm -hmm. So in addition to worrying about her, I was worrying about me. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, my husband had prostate cancer and he was going to die from that. That had metastasized. So I was dealing with a level of anxiety during those years that was absolutely, I mean... Really, I think back on it. I, I mean, it was an astonishing amount of anxiety. Can,
2: can I ask uh, just to dig in a little bit? Because I keep hearing from people who are going through horrible grief. How How did you go about a, a typical day? Like, how did you get out of bed to help your sister, help your husband, worry about yourself, go about your business? How, how did you find that strength?
3: I wrote.
0: Hmm. Um,
3: It was the same way I got over this trauma of getting leukemia myself. Wow. So
2: um, your sister passed away. It was, Mm -hmm. um, I remember us on the Today Show uh, talking about it and covering it. And it must have been, like you said, when you're a public person, your grief is public. And so is the loss. Did you find comfort in knowing that other people felt the loss? Or did you kind of wish you could have just grieved on your own?
3: Truthfully, I think I would have rather grieved on my own. I mean, I I loved the love of my friends who just you know surrounded me with love, and, and that was just incredible. But I th- I think you know this. Is just be honest. I, I was trying to think about um, Caroline Kennedy. I'm thinking her whole life. Someone sa- walked up to her and said, um, "I was driving mm-hmm. on the on mm-hmm. the Taconic when I heard your father died. I mm-hmm. you know your father's pictures on my breakfast table." Um, you know, whatever, on the wall in my house i I remember his he was so incredible to me, and she is just getting mm-hmm. thousands of her whole life has been that, and there is a lot of wanting to share, mm-hmm. and I completely understand it. Nora was profoundly important for women, and she was an amazing person, so it was both that I loved getting and also that it it was overwhelming, mm-hmm. it was a little overwhelming.
2: Yeah, and then to still be in the process of of caring for your husband at that point, yeah. um, and mm-hmm. to watch that because that was it was three more years before he passed.
3: Yes, that's right. Wow. He passed in two thousand fifteen.
2: And what did you lose the day
3: he passed? Well, just everything in my life changed because, um, you know, the strangest thing about living in a house that you've lived in with someone all those years—it's like they the, there. Are, they're on the walls. They're in the kitchen with you. They're but they're not. You know, they're. Hmm. I'm sitting on his couch watching television in his office, and I'm just feeling, you know, a, a tremendous displacement. Hmm. And everywhere I went, I felt like, what am I doing here? I think my grief was so apparent. My the fact that I felt I'd been injured in some way hmm. that I, I noticed that people started to ignore me. Like, I'd be at the cheese counter in, a, in the market and they'd take everyone but me or something. <laughs> that there was some way that I, I, my favorite moment, because these things become your favorites when you write about it, but um, was I was in a restaurant and the waiter said to me, that's a lot of dairy. He said after I placed my order and I thought, boy, I must really look pathetic that he is actually telling me I'm eating too much dairy. And, and it's hard. By the way, it's very hard when someone dies because you've got you've got all the death certificates and you have to close out accounts and you have to change everything. And people mm-hmm. are not easy. I mean, and that's how I ended up. Yeah. When my Internet crashed.
2: Well, that is funny because, <laughs> I mean, first of all, the fact that you guys had two landlines at your house, one in his name and one in yours and yeah, all you right. want. Why did you want to cancel his landline? Like, that was something you just
3: wanted to get done. Now, I, you know, first of all, I waited six months yeah. before I canceled his landline and there were no calls coming in on it, you know? And so, um, it just seemed like a place to begin. Yeah. You know, it seemed like a place to begin. And one of the things about trying to cancel his landline is that it's a rite of passage for almost everyone who loses a mate is mm. canceling their, if their cell phone, if not their landline, you know, some mm-hmm. sort of, or shutting down their internet. I mean, that is one of the things, because when I tried to do it and got into this terrible battle with my phone company and they they not only shut the landline down, but they then crashed my Internet and couldn't get it back. Um, And I got so crazy that I wrote a very funny, sad piece about it for The New York Times. And I can't tell you how much mail I got. I mean, we got so much mail on that piece and it was all people who'd had battles with their phone company. And in the same situation, I mean, it was it was really it, it's a really big thing.
2: <laughs> right. When you're grieving and you're trying to take care of business at the same time yeah. and you keep running into roadblocks, you're like, oh, my God. And you're God. dealing
3: with the prompts. They're yes. disconnecting you and then you have to be <laughs> polite to them to get them back. Very upsetting.
2: Press one if you'd like to. Press zero. Yeah, yes. Right.
3: God, we've all. And been... you start shouting, agent, agent, <laughs> agent. You just like ignore all their props. It, you really can't go a little wild. I, I went crazy. I actually did a little bit. Up next, Life Imitates Art.
2: After writing about her frustrating phone experience, Delia gets, well, mail, an email that would change her life forever. Stay with us.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time.
2: Well, in addition to the whole truckload of mail that you got and email, I'm sure um, you got one special email. Which you were how How old were you at that point when your when your husband 72. passed? 72. 72 years old, and all of a sudden you get an email from a from a gentleman named Peter. Right. And this wasn't his first interaction with you.
3: No, we had had. We still can't agree on how many dates we had because (laughs) I don't remember it at all, but I think it was two dates, but it might have been three. 54 years before when I was 18 years old and my sister Nora had fixed us up. So I got this very, very charming email from Peter, who Mm -hmm. was a psychiatrist, a Jungian analyst living in the Bay Area. And he said, you know, we had we had a couple of dates, but um so it's just the most char- was the most charming note. It was lovely. And so, of course, I sent it to at least three girlfriends to see what they thought, because at that point, I wasn't leaving the house practically without calling a girlfriend to see mm-hmm. if it was a good idea. So um I um I wrote him back. Well, first, I Googled him, of course.
2: Yeah. What want? Of course. <laughs> and what would you see?
3: And I found out he'd written two books on sexual harassment. Um, and one is called Sex in the Forbidden Zone and the other is Sex, Power, and Boundaries. And it turned out he'd spent a decade testifying in court on behalf of abused women. I mean, he was a prince, this guy. He wow. was substantive and amazing and completely charming in email, I might add. A very nice writer. So, I mean, I about fainted when I realized that. You know what I love about you? I mean, I'm
2: I'm just talking to you for the first time. You your heart didn't get hard. Like it's not even it doesn't I mean, I'm sure it has a film on it, because every heart does after going through some knocks and bumps. Yeah. But to be giggly and and excited and and
3: giddy about an email is pretty cool to, to have Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I was very frightened though. I mean, there's a lot of guilt about surviving and losing your mate. But that the strange thing was that peace that I'd written for the Times, it Mm -hmm. seemed to me it was kind of a bird call because I got some of the letters I got were like, um, if you're ever in Hartford, call me or something. You know, like there were sort of Mm -hmm. half attempts. And so I had sort of considered for the first time the idea of somebody else. And Peter didn't write me for five months after that. He wrote me three days after the first anniversary of Jerry's death. Uh-huh. And I think that year alone is a really, it's, you go through all the holidays, you go through um, all sorts of experiences um, in the first year. So I think it was just also besher, which is the word that Peter and I use, besher. It's a Yiddish word meaning uh, destined soulmate or or something mm-hmm. fated to be. And it, so it was very Besher when I received it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so clearly a good guy. Let's talk about the guilt part, because that's an interesting
2: piece, and I think anyone who's ever gone out on an, even a single date after losing a spouse is must struggle with that. How did you deal with it? What did you do?
3: well, I mean, I remember when he finally did come to the house, which was and he flew east then about three weeks later, and by that time we had completely fallen in love over email. you know it was amazing, and we began talking on the phone for hours and I remember him being in the kitchen and thinking that Jerry was there in the kitchen with us, mm. you know, wow. that I wasn't alone with peter huh. that he that he was there, and I, after being so able to talk about anything, I was suddenly shyer, different, worried mm. and um and we had to really, in a way, start again.
1: you mm. know, we had
3: to talk about what it meant to starting something over. When you're seventy-two, when death is so close, you can reach out and touch it, you know. And so, I got very frightened that that weekend, although I was extremely attracted to him. So that did mitigate it a bit. Um, but uh, yeah. and he's a wonder, most wonderful person. I mean, if you tell him what you're upset about, he just He never says you shouldn't feel that way or you, you know. Sometimes you meet a wonderful person like Peter and you're
2: like, okay, I had my share of Knox. Um, I've already, I've lost two people I love. And now it's finally time for my love, my second love story to start. Yeah. But your doctor gave you a blood test like she'd been doing over the course of a long
3: time. And 10 years, every six months, she tested my blood to see if I was okay. And every six months she would say, well, this is the most boring blood I've seen today and send me off. She's a wonderful doctor. And um, it was four months after Peter and I had just fallen head over heels for each other. And I went to my six month appointment and it just, it just came up leukemia. Oh my God. Just right there. What did you think? I, I don't even know if your brain is working then. I mean, I, I didn't think anything. I just was stunned. I called Peter and he said, I'll fly in tonight. And I called John, my friend who's a doctor, and I called my girlfriends. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it's so stunning to get a diagnosis like that. We suspected it was a fierce leukemia. I, maybe she knew that. I'd never crossed my mind that it was one of the... There are milder forms of mm-hmm. leukemia, but, but for some reason, I think I just knew it was... This and and it was confirmed that it was AML, uh, but you know every leukemia is different under a microscope. In spite of it being that my sister had AML and I had AML, we had different AMLs basically. Yeah, and my doctor just kept saying to me, you know, first of all, there are new treatments. I mean, that it is amazing at blood cancer the the progress since two thousand. 12 when she died. Amazing. So there were new drugs and there were new treatments. And she said, and you're not your sister. (laughs) Uh, Under a microscope, you're not Uh, your sister. uh. That's all she meant. But for me, you know, I mean, I just tried to be, I spent my, the first years of my life just trying to do everything she did and, and failing miserably because she was going around the track so fast I couldn't keep up. And then, you know, and then I, You know, your writing is your fingerprint. So I knew who I was because nobody writes what you write, period. I learned that. When I wrote How to Eat Like a Child, I learned that. Mm -hmm. You know, to say that to me when I, that I could survive and she wasn't able to, it was betrayal. It -hmm. felt like betrayal as well as empowerment. You know, it was both things at once. It was opposites. Boy, that betrayal, that's a strong word. Well, it, it felt like it. Yeah, a little bit. It did. Not even a little bit. But it also felt like empowerment. Yeah. It also equally strongly felt maybe you can make it, maybe you could make it, maybe you can make it. You know, and I just kept saying to myself, You're not your sister, you know, and maybe you can have a different outcome.
2: Well, and the prognosis initially wasn't good at all,
3: was it? No, it it no, it never was. I mean, yeah. AML is it's fierce. It's fierce. So you're you're going through um,
2: difficulties, medical difficulties, and you know at the time your boyfriend Peter, uh, in the middle of all this, who knows what what someone's going to do when they find out that the person that they've fallen for for four months is is very ill. What did what did Peter do?
3: He'd flown in after my diagnosis, and we were sitting, and I'm making French toast, and I'm thinking about you know I'm checking into the hospital Tuesday, and I, my mind is very. And he's sitting at the table, and he says, we should get married. And then he kind of heard himself say it, and he's, he just like popped up out of the chair and said, will you marry me? <laughs> and I said, yes. And because we all, even Peter says, he always knew we were going to get married. Mm. On our first date, we were sitting, feeling somewhat tongue-tied at the restaurant we were at. And I said to him, we're not getting married this weekend. And he started laughing. Because it had just been exactly the thing on his mind. So um, in any event, so I said yes. And then we went on uh, Monday, we went and got a license and we bought a ring. And on Tuesday, I checked into the hospital. And on Thursday, I had my first uh, chemotherapy. And on Saturday, we got married. We had where, very few where? friends come to the dining room on the 14th floor and my friend Jesse presided and we got married.
2: At the hospital?
3: Yeah, at the hospital. Do you think about <laughs> how Nora might have had a play in this?
2: I mean, how how many times do you guys talk about that?
3: Well, it just, you know, I mean, Peter says we were not meant to be together when we were young. Mm. And that we met when we did was when we were, were meant to meet. And I believe that's true, too. But there's no question I feel like she had a hand in it. Well, she had a hand in so much of my life, let's face it. But she certainly, this was really something when he said that Nora had fixed us up. I mean, she was always fixing me up, by the way, but never as beautifully as this. Yes,
2: right. (laughs) You know what I find remarkable about you? I think if someone else was in your exact circumstances, losing a sister and then losing a husband, I can see a life going a completely different way. Like, I just wonder... Because I think it's easy to retreat and say, these are the cards I was dealt. And you know what? I already had my good times before, and maybe I should just ride this out and, you know, do my thing. Um, Why do you think you did not become that person, that woman?
3: You know, I actually think it's because I like to laugh. Oh, really? Yeah. I like to have fun. And I just think that didn't go away. Mm-hmm. That's all I can put it to.
2: By the way, that sense of
3: humor—I'm so glad you were the funny one. Thank God! <laughs> Thank God! Thank you, you were the
2: funny one of the sisters.
3: No, well, so, all my sisters are funny. I just yeah. want to say that my parents just gave me that label. <laughs>
2: you were—you were the funny. one. hysterical. <laughs> all right, so let's let's write some more of your screenplay that's ongoing. This is your, this beautiful life. Is someone making a movie of this, by the way? Are you?
3: There's interest in that. And yeah, there's there. interest in theater.
2: Both. Yeah. I'm trying to decide what to do. There has to be. Yeah, no question. <laughs> no question. And what are you working on now? What do you have in the-
3: Um. Right now, I'm just working on this book. I yeah. am, you know, that is part of writing a book is selling a book, you know, that's a huge thing.
2: Well, I want to help you sell this book because <laughs> by the way, from page one, it is a delight to read. You thank do you. laugh through the most difficult moments in life. There are tons of lessons. And it is for anybody who's wondering, like, is this it? Is this all I get? This, this book, Left on 10th, A Second Chance at Life. It's a great book. Delia Efron, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. Oh, me too. Thanks for the laughs, too. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and going on this journey with me. If you like what you've heard, and I sure hope you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger, along with associate producer Rachel Yong and audio engineers Bob Mallory and Ernie Indradeff. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Minna Thuria is our executive producer. Soraya Gage, our general manager. And Madeline Harringer, our head of editorial.
0: It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms.